0: it would sound like My name is Dr. Aaron Donaldson, and you are listening to Dirt Maps, a tributary to The Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Joseph Darda from Texas Christian University about his newest book called How White Men Won the Culture Wars, A History of Veteran America. We talk about the role of music and cinema to work between parties in defining white American veteranhood, focusing on the work of Bruce Springsteen and Sylvester Stallone. We speculate about the future of veteran masculinity in the age of Trumpism, For more Dirt Maps, you can look for The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project, wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Joining me now is Dr. Joseph Darda. Dr. Darda is an associate professor of race and ethnic studies at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Go Horned Frogs. He has edited and written in various journals and is the author of two books, Empire of Defense, Race and the Cultural Politics of Permanent War, and his most recent, How White Men Won the Culture Wars, A History of Veteran America. He joins me now via Zoom to talk about some of the many concepts from his newest book. Dr. Darda, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to The Real War Project.
1: Thank you for having me, Aaron. It's my pleasure.
0: Just going to kick off the interview with the same question we ask pretty much everybody. Could you just describe yourself and your relationship to your research for our audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, I'm a professor at TCU, so uh, I'm coming at this book project from an, an academic perspective, but but I wrote it in such a way that um, that I hope it's a little bit more accessible to a wider audience. Uh, you mentioned my first book, Empire of Defense, which is a little bit more academic. That was the book to get tenure with, and so I sort of stayed a little bit closer, cued a little bit closer to the sort of academic style in this book. I I hope is maybe reaching a a slightly broader audience. And and I think that many of the things that it touches on are really relevant to to things that I think we're struggling with in the US now. And the book, it's very much about the politics of race in the post civil rights era, and how they intersect with the military and with the way in which um, veterans are being represented in in popular culture, sometimes representing themselves, often being represented by others. And, you know, I'm not, I'm often asked if, if I'm a veteran, if that's the reason that I that I came to this work and I'm not, um, not a veteran, but I grew up, you know, I think I'm, I'm 35 years old. I graduated from high school in 2005. I grew up in a small town that has a large veteran population. A lot of my classmates went on to serve and, Just growing up in at at the height of the Iraq War, I think that I, like many people, just recognized the kind of symbolic power of supporting the troops. You know, even as people had different perspectives around war, the sort of the the power that 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 the veteran as cultural figure held in the US at that time, and I think always. Um, And so that was something that I think from an early age really fascinated me. I don't think I had any kind of sophisticated language with which to, to talk about it then. But I think as I, as I went, you know, on in my, Education, pursuing a, a undergraduate degree, and then eventually a PhD in English and in the humanities. I think, you know, as a literature person, I'm always curious about r- stories that are repeated over and over again. It's often not the, the most fun to read that literature if you do a whole read a whole body of literature that's like the same story again and again. But certainly, the veteran story is one of those stories that you know there's a a certain structure that we're that we're all familiar with. You know, there's certain beats to that story, and I just saw that story getting repeated again and again on film, in literature. And I think for me, that always raises this question of like, well, what is it that we're responding to in that story that that we're hearing again and again? Why is it, it's obviously fulfilling some need that we have or some desire or some, or something if, if we're willing to, you know, spend our 10 bucks to go see that movie again and again, or to buy the by the novel. Um, and so so that's sort of what I think brought me uh, to this project, both from a professional perspective and also from a personal perspective.
0: It's such a great title. It's How White Men Won the Culture Wars, A hi- History of Veteran America. I think you do a really good job of popularizing a lot of academic terms, defining all the key concepts and stuff like that. Let's just begin with a definition of whiteness. I think um, you would probably agree now is a fairly complex time to be studying concepts such as this. Uh, how would you define this term to folks that maybe don't encounter it on an everyday basis?
1: I should first give credit to the to my editor for that title. I, I had a much drier title, and so that that title, which is I think intentionally,
0: editors doing their jobs. Yeah, yeah.
1: And you know, I'm not a real <laughs> provocative person, so I, I you know, I, I was a little hesitant to have a title that I think is you know as provocative as that one. But certainly, you know, editors want to sell books, so yeah, uh, yeah. and I'm I'm sympathetic to that, and I'd like people to read the book. So if that's how you get there. Um, but to your question, you know, yeah, what is what is whiteness, right? And this is a question I think a lot of people have been wrestling with over the past few years. For me, looking at this from the sort of World War II on, I think what is really significant is that this is a, a social formation that has achieved, it's it's malleable, it's flexible, it has been over time, um, and it, it achieved a certain kind of, I think, new stability after World War II, this moment at which... I think virtually all people of European ancestry were sort of incorporated into this idea of, of whiteness and sort of what sort of um, benefits, perks come along with that. Um, and so, you know, maybe previously, previous groups that would have been seen as white adjacent or white ethnics, you know, uh, Jewish Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans are, are increasingly sort of incorporated into this category of of white. Um, and and I, I think that, you know part of where this project comes in on that question is that the military i think has played a really important role in the production and the policing in some cases of what whiteness is and who belongs to that category and that comes through not just simply in who serves in the military because of course the military is is a very diverse institution maybe more diverse than most american institutions but i think it has a lot more to do with who is recognized honored and compensated for that service for that identity. And so that sort of is where I think the military and whiteness as this flexible concept sort of, I think, come into contact with one another. And I think um, uh, in, in a really consequential way, you
0: ex- explicitly connect it to American military culture, which I think is one of the, the components of this book that makes it really important in my field communication. When we study, um, you know, concepts like whiteness, as you say, it's like a malleable social form. I always say the universe doesn't care about who's white or not, but humans have over time frequently under threat of violence and pain and suffering and all of this kind of stuff. It comes in communicative shapes, and we want to study those shapes as they take place. And by finding that intersection of militarized discourse, you say you get sick of studying the same story over and over. I've been watching war movies every week for a year and i don't want to anymore but i'm doing homework so here i am can you really elaborate a little bit on that on how you think that relationship between whiteness and um the american military like culture maybe no not so much the institution when we think of the military we'll think of like the army and the navy and stuff like that but there's a culture beyond this a lot of people wearing fatigues never served a lot of people that think of themselves as an american soldier maybe would not put an american flag patch on their arm perhaps I don't know. Would you maybe extrapolate a little bit on some of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's part of where the the you know the you know what I raised before about the repetitiveness of you know of war or uh, literature war representations comes in, because I do think it's it's remarkable um you know just how centered that um just how centered those that form is on on white men in particular. Um and that's not that white men haven't served and don't deserve to be represented, um, but but I think it's just so uniform, just so noticeably uniform. You know, even the fact that like a movie like, you know, Spike Lee's Five Bloods didn't you know, didn't come out until 2020, right? I think it's itself is, is it t- tells a story. Um, And so, you know, what I think interests me, and I think the significance of that um, is not just a matter of, you know, you know, who does and does not deserve representation, but I think that for a larger American public, it, I think it encourages us to bring a certain person to mind when we think about the military, when we think about, um service and sacrifice you know there's a lot of things at play there i mean you could you could argue that it's just simply the influence of hemingway and everyone who ever wanted to write a war story wants to write a hemingway story <laughs> and so therefore we're just perpetually telling the same hemingway story over and over again uh-huh <laughs> but i think it has you know it has a lot of i think political significance sort of who who we acknowledge and and i i would say that you know i'm talking about this in, in the space of sort of popular culture but You know politicians are storytellers too and one thing that i begin with is i go back to uh, the 1913 gettysburg reunion in
2: 1913 the government held a 50th anniversary reunion at gettysburg it lasted three days thousands of survivors bivouacked on the old battlefield swapping stories looking up old comrades
1: which Woodrow Wilson addressed, you know, this gathering of um, of both Union and Confederate
2: troops. The climax was to be a reenactment of Pickett's Charge. As the rebel yell rang out and the old Confederates started forward again across the fields, a moan, a gigantic gasp of unbelief, rose from the Union men on Cemetery Ridge. It was then one onlooker said that the Yankees, unable to restrain themselves longer, Burst from behind the stone wall and flung themselves upon their former enemies, not in mortal combat, but embracing them in brotherly love and affection.
1: And the government, you know, provided resources for veterans of that battle to travel there, to be a part of this reunion. It was a reunion that was supposed to sort of heal the nation. That was the way it was articulated. And it was widely covered in the news media, of course, but they didn't invite any black veterans to that event, right? So it was really a reunion of Southern men and Northern men who are white, right? And so, um, and I think that you know, I think that again, it's a, it's a, it's different than a novel, different than a film, but it does, I think, similar work in terms of encouraging the American public to sort of recognize some people's service above and beyond others, and and also just sort of who who do we think of when we think of you know the the protagonist of a war movie, the protagonist of a of a war novel, the protagonist of a war, um, by extension.
0: I don't know if you know Boots Riley's film. Sorry to bother you there's a kind of throwaway line. It's one of my favorite movies commenting on whiteness. Um, But there's a kind of throwaway line where they're arguing about whether Italians are white or not. And they say, yeah, they are. And the answer is like, when? And they say, well, at least since World War II. And I had never thought of that as connecting the notion of whiteness to the notion of the veteran and putting preeminence on the greatest generation of World War II. It's a really fascinating angle as far as the stories that get told and not told, you say that white folks, white men in particular, get recognized, honored, compensated, seen. We just did, um, we're doing batches of movies in three, and then we look back at each batch, and we just did a batch on Normandy. We did not watch Saving Private Ryan yet, but what we did watch um, were movies that, made me go looking and learning that there were black balloonists that landed at Normandy and took casualties. That movie's never been made. There were black paratroopers that were prepared to drop into Normandy, but nobody thought they could do that. So they instead sent them to fight fire in Oregon, which could be a riveting movie. I think that could be a fascinating movie, but these movies don't get picked up somehow. Um, we're going to get to cinema in just two seconds. There's a kind of lurking connotation here that I feel I I want to bring more and more to the fore because a lot of people won't think of World War II era cinema in particular as like a settler colonial story, right? I'm feeling more and more that not just the white man, but the white settler patriarch is kind of really fundamental here. You said you were not sure exactly how to fit this in, but I'm very curious about what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is something that sort of goes back a little bit to my my first book Empire of Defense and it's it's a book that where I really look at what constitutes war and and I think that when we when we define something as war which we don't really we don't do in this in in the same way post World War II we don't declare war. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, the degree to which we legitimize our opponent. Um, do we see them as sovereign, um, as uh, entitled to the taking of land and resources or the possessing of land and resources? And that's really, I think, has its roots in, in settler colonialism, um, in the idea that uh, settler colonialism is not a form of war or is assumed not to be a form of war because the opponent in that case, indigenous peoples, are assumed not to have a right to self-defense, which is inherent to any kind of legitimate warfare, the idea that there are two sovereign opponents. And I think that in that that, that book grew directly into the second book, which is I'm then sort of looking at like well, how is it that we come to think about wars belonging to certain, Bodies and to certain people, and you know there are different stakeholders, right? I think worth saying that this does not mean that people who have served in the military are benefiting from their service necessarily to the extent that people who often are white men who did not serve are benefiting from that service. But I think that they're you know bound up in those questions are are sort of the roots of of settler colonialism, and of course you know there was a there was a certain settler colonial framework through which. Vietnam, the sort of the focus of this book was was understood, and that's been written about extensively. And so, so yeah, that's I think that's sort of lurking as a kind of you know the the sort of the bones of the way in which we still I think uh, think about war and um, an opponent and whether something is constitutes a war or one of the many euphemisms that we give it a uh, a police action and
0: so on. Been learning a lot about Andrew Jackson, and uh, mm-hmm. there is an individual who kind of straddles that line of kind of classical warfare and settler colonial like warrior at the same time. And even in the book, they kind of distinguish how he went from being a militia, you know, general to a general in the United States army and what that meant. And just a mm-hmm. an, an interesting way that we look at our ongoing acts of genocide in ways, but don't want to name them. Maybe, I don't know. It just seems fascinating. Let's take a pivot now to media. You say in your book that Bruce Springsteen's music uh, and Sylvester Stallone's movies in particular, especially Rambo, Rocky, these are the artifacts you pick up anyway. Maybe these aren't like the only ones or the you know the first. They do though. They, I think they play a huge part in crafting another shared narrative, not just the white folks at Gettysburg in 1913. Fast forward now to The Boss and um, Rambo. And what we see here is a kind of shared narrative across music and across cinema, and you think this creates a shared space to create another notion of the American veteran, or a more particular shared notion of the American veteran. In the book, you say, and I thought this was fascinating, the move from Rocky to Rambo, the boxing fighter to the soldier fighter, and then you have Bruce Springsteen as a kind of liberalized version of this. Um, I just really appreciate that. Why do you find music and cinema to be so important? Like you may confront people that are like, you study movies for a living or you write about music for a living. Like why are these spaces so important to you when it comes to like, understanding the world and things
1: part of it is is probably self-interest i'm an english professor so i want to believe culture is important of course <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, professional security job security this is we'll acknowledge this yeah
1: yeah i'm, I'm required to make this case um <laughs> but but i do i do think there is an extent to which we we engage with um popular culture with our with our political guard down and i think that 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 has a lot of significance to it right i think when we hear when we go hear a politician speak right we're kind of immediately a little bit skeptical like well what what is the pitch that, that is being made to us? You know, what is the, you know, what is the interest of this politician of the party and so on? Whereas, you know, with, popular culture with entertainment, we're, we're looking for something else. And, and of course there's a politics to it, but we're not, that's might not be the first thing that we're thinking about when we're listening to born in the USA or, or seeing, you know, <laughs> Rambo first blood. No. <laughs> um, and, and so for me, uh, for me, I think, you know, especially when you think about the success of an album, like born in the USA or a film like the second Rambo film mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that any, any, piece of media, any work of popular culture that is that successful has to be telling us something about, you know, where, where people are at at that moment, how they're feeling, what they're thinking. Um, even if it's not, you know, something that is entirely conscious or articulated in a kind of political register. And so that's really, I think why I think, you know, film, um, and, um, and, and literature is, is interesting. And it's also, and and music, um, but it's also a way, you know, I mentioned before, I, I was hoping with this second book to reach a slightly wider audience. It's also, I think, a way to get people interested, yeah. right? Um, you know, I spend a lot of time as well on like legal and political history, but even for me, who is interested enough in that to write a book about it, it's never as fun as thinking about Bruce or <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, and it's also challenging for me as well because I grew up in a Springsteen household. Mm-hmm. My dad is a you know diehard Springsteen guy, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it really is, and it's music I'm very fond of as well, and so it's it also for me it was a way of kind of trying to think critically about something that for much of my life I've just consumed yep. with just pleasure and a sense of enjoying what i'm hearing and i and I didn't necessarily think of it in terms of well you know what cultural, political work does this music do at the specific moment?
0: Critical thinking is supposed to empower us to speak back to what we encounter in the world. People will sometimes say that after they read a book like this or take my class, they can't watch movies again without thinking about how they connect. And I'm like, that's the critical consciousness. We did it. We did it. We put it in there. (laughs) But they can also do very personal work, picking up your love object. Not easy. We don't want to pick up the thing that is really important to who we are. But if you really want to interrogate who you are, especially the power components of that, that's where we got to go. That's pretty important. We just had a great conversation about The Guns of Navarone. We've picked up a couple of other movies that came in book form first. Books can do so much that movies cannot. Movies and music can obviously do so much that books cannot. As just forms of media, they recruit us in new and important ways i think mm-hmm. one of the books that i've read is um the thin red line and in the introduction to the thin red line you're an english prof so i'm very curious about your thoughts here the author says that movies can never critique war this is maybe getting to the end I had a schedule because the book is boring and bland the book is interesting in the narrative and rich in the imagination but it is always words on a page and as soon as we translate music and motion picture, the movie is the, the music is going to tell a war story that is always going to be just that much more delicious, I guess. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: That is interesting, especially in the context of The Thin Red Line, which is just sort of a sumptuously beautiful war yeah. film, right? It's the most yes. aestheticized war movie you could possibly imagine. Gorgeous. And, and yeah, I mean, I do think there is something to that. And I think it, it comes both on the, the reception end, but also on the production end. On the reception end, of course, you know, if we see. You know these really handsome beautiful celebrities in these roles and you know there's this kind of spectacularization of the whole thing you know on film on
0: Zimmer's music the music was exactly like, oh. exactly and so I
1: do I do think I do think that, that there is there's truth to that and I think also in the production and it's it's also, I think just movies are much more expensive than books, you know, like you as an individual author can write yeah. a novel and, you know, maybe you're not going to get it published with one of the biggest, you know, with one of the biggest presses, but it's it's lower stakes financially. And I think ho- at least if you're talking about Hollywood film, I do think yeah. there's, there's a lot of there's a, there's sort of a lot of i think checks in place to make sure that you're not sort of moving too far outside of kind of the the boundaries of popular taste. Yep. And so for that reason got
0: to make a safe bet. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I don't think a lot of Americans are that eager to think about American imperialism or, you know, like that's that's <laughs> not a great way to sell tickets. Um and so
0: yeah. We've looked at the bottom line of some of these anti-war movies. It's not good. No, it's not no, good. it's not. And it's not. <laughs> you will spend your own money to make that movie. You will spend your own money. Ex- to make it, that.
1: Precisely. Right. And I think that, you know, and I, yeah. and unfortunately I think Hollywood has seen evidence of that as well. Right. Which is, yeah. you know, if you look at Stallone's kind of Vietnam war trilogy, right. Platoon makes a bunch of money yep. born on the fourth of July makes a lot of money. Yeah you know, I would say that Heaven and Earth just also just wasn't a very good movie. So it's not just perspective. But you know, the second he tries to introduce (laughs) the perspective of a a Vietnamese or Vietnamese American woman, you know, to the center of that, uh, of that drama, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make money, and I'm sure Hollywood looked at that and said, "Well, we're never doing that again, right?" Because um, that was thirty million dollars lost, or or whatever it might have been. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that that also in that production end, I think there is there's a certain kind of you know Hollywood wants a safe bet, right? It's the reason that we get another Marvel Cinematic Universe movie every few months, and you know that's you can take that straight to the bank.
0: I love to say even liberal people will make safe bets if it's their twenty million dollars that they're <laughs> spending, and for Men in Black, it's like sixteen thousand dollars a second, and mm-hmm. Hemingway's a big deal, but he's not getting paid that to sit down and write. That's not how that works. He's just pouring his time into each page. And that time is valuable in the the sense, I guess, that that's valuable. But to make Men in Black, and then the question becomes, do you want Will Smith or not? If it's my 20 million, probably... Like, I mean, yeah, he's a big deal and he's made a bunch of movies and we got this new and upcoming person, but are you going to hire that person? Oh, and we want to critique the war that everybody loves? I don't know. This sounds like a, yeah, (laughs) it's
1: a risk, it's a risk averse business. There's no doubt about it. And understandably so. You're right. If I had $20 million, you know. I would put it I would put it into a you know Marvel another Marvel movie I suppose
0: <laughs> Well I say with Transformers the Department of Defense every car company on the planet and toy manufacturers <laughs> want those movies to be made that's why there's so many Because why wouldn't you make it when all of those people are showing up and saying do you need an aircraft carrier <laughs> do you need like you know like so, the book does a really good job of emphasizing how indigenous, black, other non-white populations served and are then ignored by the United States military throughout history. Uh, not no surprise, though, in the book you say that between Springsteen's music and Stallone's film, we get this hegemonic imaginary of the American veteran as a white, abandoned, soul-searching, wounded white man trying to find a way to explain what he has done that kind of wins out. Is this right? Can you... Uh, maybe fill in things that I might be missing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, these sort of chapters is sort of chapters three and four of the book, and it's really I see I see them as kind of companion chapters. The mm-hmm. first about Springsteen, the second about Stallone, and I'm I'm far from the first person to to notice that these two, you know, these two cultural figures of the early to mid 1980s were sort of companion celebrities at the time as well. You know, one identified with the political left, one with the political right. And I really wanted to sort of explore the way in which they were kind of coming to the veteran story um, from those two kind of political lanes. And and I think that what what unites them for me is really this question of that. I think the civil rights era and and feminism um, at its height were raising for white male artists of different kinds, which was, you know, what do we do? (laughs) What do we do after civil rights, after feminism in which? We we can no longer make movies or make music with the assumption that what we're doing is somehow universal or it's a default position from which to write a song or to uh, write a screenplay. And I think it's interesting that those that these two men, you know, Springsteen, sort of a liberal liberal songwriter who's really thinking about the working class, and 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 Stallone, who's you know famously associated with with the right and ultimately with the Reagan administration, um, that they both arrive at, at the veteran. Neither of them are veterans. Both of them. Them, in fact went to some to some effort to avoid service in the Vietnam War and Springsteen has been much more candid about this than Stallone has yep. but I find it interesting that they both that this is kind of a, I think a solution to both to a, a, a shared question that they're asking themselves which is like where do we land at this moment in the 1980s as as white guys making art right and and so I, I that was really what I wanted to explore with this is sort of why why the veteran what does the veteran do for them why do these two guys neither of whom served in the war, um, see the Vietnam veteran as sort of the protagonist of, you know, their biggest successes. Right. In the case of Springsteen, you know, everyone knows a song born in the USA. he wrote many songs in this period about veterans it's, it's far from his only song about uh, the experience of vietnam veterans
2: another minute but you eat with their families in rich dining halls an apology and forgiveness got no place here at all He the wall And Stallone,
1: of course, you know, with the Rambo franchise. Back to your question, Aaron, about sort of is this the one narrative that we tell? I think one thing that was re- that's really interesting about that story, which is certainly not the only story available. It's certainly not the only story that veterans are telling about their, their their about their experiences. But I think it's the one that was heard the loudest, that was projected the loudest, and therefore the one that Springsteen and Stallone grabbed onto, and the one that. Was the most lucrative, I think, in 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 the music industry and in the movie industry, and I think it has to do with not just simply this idea of the downtrodden vet and sort of the wounded white male, but also there's a kind of flexibility that I explore in um, in this book um, in terms of what what Stallone and Springsteen are able to do with the veteran, which is the veteran at this time is simultaneously the most American, right? Yeah. We've always sort of seen the veteran as kind of protagonist for the nation, right? Kind of stand in for the nation. And so in that in that way, it's kind of a claiming of, you know, the ultimate kind of American standing, American status, American citizenship. At the same time that that sort of balancing that out with this kind of notion of woundedness is a way to, I think, compete sometimes subconsciously with the claims being made by the civil rights movement, by the feminist movement.
2: It's a long road when you're on your own. And it hurts when they tear your dreams.
1: And so the power of that of the, the veteran symbolically that I think Springsteen and Stallone perhaps not, not consciously are, lean, are, are seeing is that, that balancing act. Um, and I think you can see them play different sides of that a little bit more. I think with Stallone, the sort of binge, the, the sort of the more sort of revenge-oriented war film, you see much more of the kind of veteran as stand-in for the nation. And I, I refer to that in the book as the American veteran. It's over, Johnny.
2: It's over. Nothing is over.
0: Nothing. You just don't turn it off. It wasn't my war. You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they that protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about.
1: And I see Springsteen in sort of liberal cultural producers flipping that and sort of sort of thinking of the veteran more in terms of, I, I call it sort of veteran American, sort of veteran hyphen American, as if to compete with um, someone who is positioning oneself as African-American or someone who is, who is identified with uh, a minoritized uh, identity and, at that time. Uh,
0: the next
2: time they're gonna be looking at you and you're gonna need a lot of information to know what you're going to want to do. Because in 1985, blind faith in your leaders, or in anything, will get you killed.
1: You know, someone like Toni Morrison, who Tim O'Brien compared himself to a number of times. I think, problematically,
0: comes up too much. Yeah. these conversations. Just oh, those moments in your yeah, book are just and it's off. and
1: it's the flexibility, right? Because the power is not just you know articulating it as you know the wounded veteran, but also to simultaneously be able to say like, and that's why the book is called How White Men Won the Culture Wars. Um, it's about right, all an ultimate victory, right? Um, and I think that there was a The New Republic reviewed this book. Um, and I, I'm not on social media, but I think I got a lot of backlash for, I think the title had something like the white men who wanted to white men who wanted to be victims or something like that was the title and victim was in there. It's a word that I really yeah. intentionally avoided yeah. in this book because I, I don't think this is really a story about victimization. It's a story about um, white reunion yeah. really. And that's sort of more of the narrative that I wanted to tell. Unification. Yeah. A shared mm-hmm. space.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you mentioned in the book how veterans, in, at the time that we're writing, we're comparing themselves to Toni Morrison, saying that you know that individual is never going to write about what it means not to be black, and they can't write about anything about besides being a veteran, which is just a profound moment in identity politics that we have not enough time to talk about. <laughs> and if I
1: could, if I could jump in real briefly, or just to sort of flesh that out uh, for people, list like people listening who might not have read the book, like I think that the best way to think about it is the difference between veterans of World War II and veterans of the Vietnam War, and how that they are how they are situated as authors. You know, I I offer the example of like Norman Mailer and Joseph Heller, who, you know, both World War II veterans, both wrote very popular World War II novels. Um, And then, you know, for if you're a veteran of of the Vietnam War, that becomes much more core to your identity as an author, right? So you have... Tim O'Brien, you have Larry Heinemann, you have uh, Robert Olin Butler, you have these writers who make a whole career out of writing, mining that single experience. Um, and and I, you know, I I think you can argue different things about that, but it definitely suggests that that experience becomes much more core to those writers' identities. Than it was for Norman Mailer or for Joseph Heller, who you know, in their obituaries, right? They're not described as veteran writers in the way that, you know, a Larry mm-hmm. Hyman was, or when Tim O'Brien, you know, um, receives his New York Times obituary. Hopefully, hopefully, a long time from now, but it'll it'll you know emphasize that he wrote many books mm-hmm. about the veteran experience. The, the
0: the question was really focusing on how music and movies and books and all of this stuff come together to create a shared culture. I just want to collect what we've got so far. American veterans are abandoned, soul-searching, wounded white men trying to find a way to kind of explain what they've done. This is a, a, a shape that we can find in discourse kind of throughout time. It's going to change over time. No single person is responsible. I say there's a choir. And when a bunch of voices hit sympathetic structures, we get this thing called a chord. And chords can make melodies, and those can carry out through time. And What's interesting is you can hear it in Bruce Springsteen's music, um, you can definitely hear it in moments in Rambo, and all of these things are disparate, and, and yet they're all arranging themselves on these same nodes that are saying this wounded white man is being left behind, and that's the saddest thing happening in the war right now. I don't know. It's it's um, We're going to get to the wounded part of the notion in a minute. I think that's very important. But the research tracks that, like, on fragility, if you bring this up and if you name this, white people will feel attacked. Uh, Nakayama and Kryzak say white men men get angry. White women cry, which typically recruits white men to save the white women from crying. Um, The research on fragility says you're going to get pissed. And if you're a white person and you get pissed, I say, that's a clue. We have to listen to that clue and think, why am I so upset about this? I don't think we're going to get a whole lot of uh, pushback on this next question. But I feel like this particular narrative, the wounded man, white man being left behind, this is the saddest thing. This has new frightening legs in the age of Trumpism. Other nodes in that court, I'm, I'm just riveted the January 6th stuff right now. I don't know. A lot of people are watching that stuff. But I hear it. I think I hear it in there in its own way. Uh, And this is, in fact, a big part of your epilogue. In the book, you invoke former Trump's speech saying, we treat our veterans worse than um, so-called illegal immigrants. And you quip that we all know what he means. Um, I just really appreciate that note. I'm wondering if you could extrapolate a little bit on where is this narrative now in 2022? Like, what does it look like and where do we see it?
1: This is is where in the book, I have an epilogue that sort of is dedicated to uh sort of the the trump years um and you know my 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 dad i mentioned my father before you know he read this book because springsteen was in there so he was going to read the book and my mom i don't doesn't usually read my books um it's not her not her interest um but he told her you know if you read the epilogue you'll pretty much get the core idea and so that was what she read and so says so, yeah so she's like yeah the epilogue you know like i've i've pretty much got it you know and it is true i think to some extent trump took i mean this is what trump did with a lot of things he took all of these things that I think were kind of being articulated in the popular imagination, in really subtle ways in the 1970s, and 1980s, and he just does it explicitly, right, um, in terms of the way that he is kind of manipulating, you know, veteran-ness in, in, his, in his campaign, and then subsequently, um, and I should just say to sort of, you know, distill that down, I think one of the moments that best represents this is in 2015, early in the Republican primary, when he attacked John McCain for, you know, not being in his mind a hero, not being a war hero.
2: I supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that, because I don't like losers. But, but Frank, so Frank, let me hero. get to it. He's he hit me. Hero. He's not a, a war He's hero. He's a war hero. A He's a, a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with hero.
1: that? Um, and this was a moment that I think shocked a lot of news media, especially I think liberal news media, like, "Oh, Trump has officially gone too far. He can never recover from this. He's, you know, he's insulted."
0: The right was shocked too. They just didn't say. They didn't know how to say. Exactly, it. you could see in their face that they were floored. But they yeah. were, yeah. Like,
1: and it was, it was sort of. Be- I think it was beyond. I think sort of the political mainstream. Um, but anyone who'd followed like the POW MIA movement from the '80s on knew that McCain was seen as an enemy of that movement. Um, that he was seen as an enemy of veterans. Ironically, yeah. as one of the most famous veterans of the Vietnam. War from the U.S. side. And I think that that. Perfectly represents one of the things that I think we're reckoning with now, which is that you know part of what this the story of this book tells is the way in which veteran experience and the cultural figure of the veteran and veteranness get increasingly detached from veterans themselves. Mm-hmm. It becomes this, almost like this free-floating signifier where people who are not veterans are claiming that. And this I'm not speaking here about stolen valor right. as much as I would I would call it like almost like reflected valor wow. because mm-hmm. veterans have been sort of raced white and gendered male. There's almost a degree in which a lot of white men who are politically powerful um, see themselves as able to kind of claim something of that reflected valor and as something of yeah. sort of a veteran identity for themselves. And Trump is a perfect example of that, right? You know, I don't know how many times there were stories about his yeah. sort of ducking service in in Vietnam, and I think that that. That that moment with McCain perfectly perfectly represented like that for at least a certain segment of the American popul of the American public, Trump is more of a veteran than McCain, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and that really I think is it raises a question of sort of what this will mean going forward, especially in the era of you know an all volunteer force um, where we have you know fewer and fewer veterans, the smaller and smaller group. Mm-hmm. I'll be fascinated. You know I don't know that I have anything profound to say about 2022, but I am watching some. Someone like you know JD Vance very carefully because I'm curious to see yep. to what extent um, he incorporates his military his military service into his identity as politician um, and sort of where we're at with that um, because I think that. You know, Vance is someone who has been very careful around Trump and sort of has reached this point of détente with Trump, right? Where he needs Trump to kind of be on his side in order to potentially, you know, um, become a national politician, right? And and so I'm I'm looking at sort of that and sort of wondering what that's going to look like, you know. And on on the left, you have someone like a Pete Buttigieg, right? Like, you know, these guys who be who are prominent and and we all know that they serve, but where does that figure into their biography, sort of going forward?
0: Duckworth or yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. And to what extent? I, to what to what extent does that uh, does that resonate, or is that something that can be claimed by someone like Trump, who is you know uh, identifies himself as champion of veterans, even if he has you know no meaningful connection to uh, to veterans or to military service himself?
0: The meaningful connection is a rhetorical one; it's just a purely cultural, superficial one, and that matters. That's a very influential force. Um, again, here I'll say the mm-hmm. universe won't call it stuff, but. Trump supporters definitely will. They will support Mm -hmm. that. Um, So, yeah, really important not to fixate on Trump and Trumpism as hard as it is to not stare at the sun. That can make you go blind, I think. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Do you see this narrative showing up with similar resilience on the left? I I feel like um, it fits in kind of fascinating ways. I told you in the email with like the Avengers movies, if you're familiar with those, it sounds like it. Um, though these may not be like liberal media. We talked about that a little bit, right? Um, With all due deference to the boss, who's still very much alive and kicking. Is there like a contemporary Bruce Springsteen in this equation as you see it from the left? What's that look like?
1: This is a thing that I've sort of struggled with, Try to think of what that looks like. And it's hard for me to imagine sort of, you know, someone in the position of a Springsteen, today, sort of someone who's kind of of the sort of center, like the sort of center left position, who is able to still have a large fan base on the right. And I don't know, maybe it's not possible anymore. I think even if you look at the 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 trajectory of Springsteen's career, right? I think that, you know, he was pretty careful even around Ronald Reagan, who tried to sort of, you know, try to recruit Springsteen as kind of a character witness for himself in the 1984 campaign, Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully, ultimately, but it wasn't like Springsteen came out and supported Democratic candidates running for office. Um, He was sort of more, he was sort of, you know, more circumspect about it and sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm sort of with the people, you know, he had sort of a broad way of sort of dispelling this idea that he. Was somehow in in Reagan's pockets, uh, but then of course you know we now would associate Springsteen very strongly, I think, with the Obama administration. Right? He, he sang at the um, at the first inauguration. Yeah, you
0: have a podcast, and
1: so I I do I do wonder if maybe we ask, especially I think on the left, we ask our our cultural heroes, our cultural celebrities, to be more explicit about their politics. Now that makes it difficult for someone who maybe has politics that are on the left side of the equation to reach uh that kind of general audience you know the the closest person i can think of of some like someone like springsteen would be like i don't know like taylor swift or something oh interesting where it would be a big deal when she's even able to sort of he's even articulating you know mild support for moderate democratic candidates right which is sort of more where springsteen was at in 84 or so, yeah, I don't know. It's also, I think, not to go back to, you mentioned we shouldn't let Trump take up all of the space in the room, but there is a certain way in which I think right now the left is, or at least liberals, or about the left, have have responded um, to Trump and and everything that Trump touches is like, you know we can't go there, right? And so I think they sort of have let Trump own the space now, and so there is a way in which I think there's kind of a fleeing from that. I, you know, I mentioned Buttigieg before. I think that you know when he was um, running in 2020, you know, I think he really he really pulled back away from his his service, which makes in the the larger history of you know running for office with millet with a military record it makes no sense, right? You you could almost unimaginable, but I really feel like he he backed away from that. We heard a lot more about Mayor Pete and sort of his small town roots. Mm-hmm. We we learned a lot more about, um, you know, his academic accomplishments, about his sexuality, about his marriage. And I feel like the Iraq war veteran part, which normally would be, you know, that's like, biographical point number one if you want to run for national office it was
0: leading the parade right yeah Yeah. and i
1: i I don't know i assume he had advisors who were telling him let's let's lean on let's lean away from this um which to me suggests that maybe you know maybe the the left is not there right now or liberals are not there right now and wanting to um, kind of uh, compete for that space with the
0: right. Potentially really emphasizing that World War II has a really kind of key significance here in terms of bringing sides together. Uh, the Civil War, we say, we have learned, had a way of doing this too. And it, they just do this in a way that Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, Vietnam, yes, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, no, that's very interesting. I don't know. So we're running out of time, but I do, I want to spend a little bit of time on why the wounded veteran is so important here in your mind. Um, you detail it's part of like a historic trend of blowback that we've talked about to calls of justice and inclusion. I feel like the ability to bear spectacular wounds is also a really important part of hegemonic American masculinity, so-called toxic masculinity. Um, is there maybe more to it than that? Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I think that that's, that's accurate. And I and I think it's, you know, to go back to sort of my earlier point about the sort of this balancing act between American veteran and veteran American, um, I think it's the, it's the sort of the, that woundedness, but in combination with this sense of um, of a service rendered to the nation, um, which is part of like a sort of a claim to to a certain entitlement yeah. as well, right? And, and quite literally, in the sense that there there are certain privileges that that people with military service records um, receive, and I think rightfully so. And I think that one. One thing that is that to me really distills so much of the book, and it's the reason I begin with this, is the Regents of the University of California v. Bakke decision from 1978. Um, and there's been a lot written about this. It's it's, you know, best known as the uh, quote unquote reverse racism case um, where Alan Bakke, who was this, you know, college graduate who wanted to go. He, he was a he was a, a military veteran. He, he'd served four years in the Marines. Um, he had um, wanted to go to medical school and was denied a spot at UC Davis's medical school, which is then a, a relatively new medical school. At the time, there had been set aside, I believe, 16 of 100 seats um, for, you um, uh, students of color. Um, so, this would be a quota system. And it's, it's the Bakke decision that makes it so you can no longer have quota systems after 1978. Um, and I think, and this is a story that's little told about Bakke, but I think it's significant, is that part of the way that he was understood by the public and, and presented by his legal team was, you know, he is a veteran of the Vietnam War, of this thankless status, war. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it it became this way in which, because he was being presented as someone who was competing. you know sort of positioned against affirmative action for um you know people being trained black people being trained to be doctors right to therefore Mm -hmm. serve go on and serve black communities which is the idea behind this medical school um quota system um they're connected to that i think is is not just his woundedness but also his deservedness Mm -hmm. and i think that that was that's really is is the powerful move that his legal team made which was that it's by by summoning his military service. Was this is not just someone who um, shouldn't be denied uh, an, a possibility to compete for those sixteen additional spots, mm-hmm. but he, unlike others, you know, I'm here. All this is all in air quotes, right? Deserves his affirmative action, right? That right? he deserves that he's earned that, unlike others who are receiving handouts.
0: It's different from Abigail Fisher in that ca- characteristic, right? That's a key difference mm-hmm. from the most recent example of this is the Abigail Fisher case, right?
1: Exactly, right? And I think that I think that's that that all would have looked very different in the way the public received it if she had been a veteran actually. Yeah. And so and I do wow. think that, that that was sort of the magic of the Baki. I mean, there's a reason, right, that that Bakke's case was picked up by these uh, by these firms.
0: I was gonna say that it, like, that the Fisher case suggests this is less necessary now. But as soon as you said that, I'm like, that would have mm-hmm. been incredible. That would have been incredible for that case. That would have made it even more significant for folks on the right because of that linking between service and deservedness. Exactly. And there's a long
1: history there. you know. Like a, a, Ira Katznelson, the political scientist, wrote a book, I think in 2005 or so, mid-2000s, called uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. And it's primarily a story about the GI Bill. It's about redlining and other things, but it's really about uh, the way that the GI Bill was um, an important leg up for primarily white men, right? And so many many black veterans were famously denied, yeah. infamously denied uh the, you know, access to, to so sort of many of the perks of the GI Bill. And so there's a long history there, but I think Bakke sort of takes that formula of the GI Bill and sort of, you know, um, I think um modifies it for a kind of a post-civil rights moment.
0: I really appreciate all of that. we have got two more questions here. We'd like to ask guests that we have on the show a kind of simplistic question. We've already touched on it a little bit with our conversation about the thin red line. I think that movie wants to be anti-war, but I feel like it is so beautiful and I just watch it so much and it really plays on the aestheticization of Empire and on and on and on and on and on, even in a way to try to condemn it. Like, the beginning of this movie, you see this ship against this vibrant jungle backdrop, and the ship looks ugly and crass and primitive, but it just keeps feeding the imaginary, I think, and to me, this means it's impossible to have an anti-war movie, and obviously, different people will read things different ways, that's why it's, like, deceptively simple. Do you think it's possible to make an anti-war movie in the context of this imaginary? And if so, what might that look like? What would that have to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, the 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 skeptic in me thinks no, probably not. I think it's uh, it was Anthony Swafford's Jarhead where he sort of says something to the effect, I'm sure you're familiar with this line, you know, like even the most seemingly anti-war movie to a certain audience, maybe young men, <laughs> you know, it's going to be seen as a pro-war movie. And so it's, it's a little bit of the, you know, the eye of the holder.
0: My co-host Charles is going to be very excited that you brought up Jarhead. This particular moment, yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, when they turned when they made the Jake Gyllenhaal film, or they adapted it to film, I think is, are they watching Apocalypse now? Is that the movie that they're watching?
0: that's the scene that we pick up okay yeah we watch a whole batch we watch apocalypse now full metal jacket and then jarhead and he did it so we could put that movie in context with that moment yeah key moment
1: it is i think it's you know and, and i don't know it, it It. you mentioned this before but it's also just the, the power of this of cinema as a form somehow i i think about this i mentioned oliver stone before and my partner and I, we just recently rewatched um, Wall Street, you know, which just like Platoon is kind of famously a thing, a movie that's supposed to be against something that ultimately feels almost in the end for it, right? Like Wall Street, you know, goes from being yeah. this kind of, it's supposed to be this condemnation of the greed on Wall Street. And then like, you know, a bunch of young men on Wall Street watch that movie and they say, I want to be Gordon Gecko," right? <laughs>
0: This is apocalypse now to me. This is apocalypse <laughs> yeah. now. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so so I don't know. I think and I think a lot of it has to do with with perspective. Um and I just don't know that I think you could probably make an anti-war movie, but it probably can't be made by it can't be made by an industry that belongs to the nation with the most powerful military in the world somehow so yeah. maybe there are great anti-war movies being made elsewhere but i don't know that hollywood is going to be responsible for those yeah. because i you know as we talked about before i just don't know that hollywood wants to hollywood wants to make money and the I think recognize the boundaries of what American audiences will respond to. And so even our, the war, the movies that we see as, as anti-war, I think always temper that message with, in one of two ways, which is that you either have a bunch of well-meaning American soldiers or veterans that make us look better. Right. So this is like platoon, right. You have like you, you know, yes, the war is presented as being bad, but the men themselves, other than the, the, the sort of the evil, you know, uh, the evil character, you know, like who sort of is leading the, the bad wing of the, the platoon, right? You always have the good characters kind of temper the, the message that's sort of critiquing American war making, or you temper it with irony, uh, which is the full metal jacket version, right? Which, which right. is... I think is more successful in some ways, but it's also kind of a way of throwing up one's hands, right? And just kind of being like, yeah. you know, war is inevitable yeah. and that's that, you know, um, boys will be boys. And so so I think that those are kind of the two main categories I would fit sort of the American anti-war movie into. And I don't know that either are successful enough to even retain that title as anti-war, to your point.
0: We had a fun conversation about Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove, both from 1964, both about nuclear annihilation. One of them hilarious, the other one very straight-faced. I said both of them succeed and fail in their own ways. Um, As you note, it's expensive. Uh, I just talked to Dr. Raya Morag. She has a book called Defeated Masculinity that crosscuts very well with your book. So many sympathies here. You may be familiar. Um, She mentioned... Come and See, which is a non-American film that Charles and I have talked about but not seen because it seems horrifying, which is that we say the title itself is proving the point. Nobody wants to see a war movie that is going to make them depressed, and it's like, don't you want to see a war movie, though? But she also brought up Paths of Glory, Stanley Kubrick's famous 1957 uh, movie. But to speak about the marketability of this, Stanley Kubrick uh, had to spend $935,000 to make this, according to the IMDb, and the gross worldwide is (laughs) $5,000. You give me $935,000 and I will hand you $5,000, and the takeaway is you get to be mentioned in a podcast as a successful anti-war movie. I don't know that that's succeeding. <laughs> so. Yeah, You
1: only, only only, only, a billionaire would be in a position to make,
0: uh, to make that movie now, yeah. Or Stanley Cooper. Or Stanley right, Cooper, yeah. <laughs> and in Jarhead, we said that it sets up a lot of expectations, and then it lets them all down. That specific moment, it's amping up all these Marines, and they say, get some Marines, get some, which is just a horrific invocation from Full Metal Jacket, because when you hear it in that movie, he's just machine-gunning villagers, and they celebrate that at the end of the moment when they interrupt the movie to put them on a commercial airplane and the pivot is like nope you don't get what you want you don't get what you want but at the end i think swafford is white abandoned soul-searching wondering um and deserving i think the movie accomplishes all of those things which again culture is kind of nasty if you talk about it um it replicates itself and if you don't talk about it it just continues to exist without your resistance so tough one
1: yeah and i like i like that i like that those 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 films as a sort of example because i do think you're right i think a lot of it is also the best kind of i think representations of war i think sort of in some ways force us to reckon with our own you know our own expectations and and our own sort of Mm -hmm. desires um you know i think like to put Cassis in sort of a literary space i think that was part of the success of uh viet wins uh the sympathizer i think was to kind of i think sort of turn turn that around a little bit and sort of force a kind of reckoning with like, well, why do I, you know, um, or even like um, uh, Mosin Hamid's The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is sort of all cast as kind of a, a speaking back to kind of, I think, an American CIA agent or something like that. It sort of, I think, forces us to kind of confront sort of our expectations in, around the genre, especially with a genre like this that just has um, such a set of templates that we're accustomed to
0: I love connecting apocalypse now to wall street that's amazing that's just <laughs> gonna sit with me for, oops <laughs> okay last question thank you so much for taking this time always interested to hear what folks like you are reading or watching is there anything right now that you'd like to share that makes you think or that's maybe informing future projects
1: yeah so I'm well a book I just read for the first time was John Williams stoner which i don't know if you're familiar with it but it's a, it's a campus novel it was published in 1965 my understanding is that it sort of there was renewed interest in it in the 2000s. There was kind of, it was re-released, but it tells the story of a English professor at the University of Missouri, sort of his journey from his small, you know, his family farm to the University of Missouri and ultimately becoming an English professor. And I'm a part of the reason I'm reading this right now is not just pure navel gazing um, as an English professor, but um, (laughs) I've toyed for a long time with teaching a campus novel class at TCU, which I think I'm actually gonna finally Hmm. do. because uh, I'm really I uh, just sort of fascinated with you know I mean uh, this is again navel gazing but uh, but I but I've, I've, I'm fascinated with the way that we think about the campus and uh, you know it as a, as a particular kind of space in the us what the what the university is supposed to do, who it belongs to who belongs on campus um, and I think that sort of campus novel is kind of an interesting way to get at that question um, and so i I, I really enjoyed this This novel stoner, which I thought was just uh just kind of fantastic, and so that's that's something that i've I've been it's sort of churning that over right now you know in part not not for any research project but for a sort of you know an idea of sort of a future class that i that I might teach
0: It's so interesting how many people think of like um dead poet society and things like that when it's like what is college like or what is it like to go to college. So it's an important imaginary. Yeah. I hope that goes places and I can't wait to see what you do with it.
1: Yeah. The inspiration for the, the professor or the teacher in Young Poet Society was at uh, the University of Connecticut when I was there for graduate school. I remember like one of the first parties, everyone would nudge you and be like, that's the dead poet oh, Society guy. You know, like and so it was, yeah. it's interesting how much of those kind of stories, I think for people who end up being, you know, like us right. sort of. Long-term creatures of the of the of the university, right? Yeah. Like I think that um, it's amazing. I think how those kind of narratives can shape the way you think about or the attraction to
0: it. Goodwill hunting too come into mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think all of us have fantasies of working on a blackboard in the hallway as a janitor and sort of you know tr- you know uh, one-upping all of these yeah. fancy Harvard people who think they they know everything
0: or having that kid take our book off the shelf and start asking us about it in our office. Yeah, I exactly. think that's maybe where I'm sitting <laughs> in this fantasy.
1: Room. It's a great. Yeah, it's a oh. great. Right. It's a great fantasy of campus <laughs> of the campus, I think, and, this, and uh, you know, yeah. seizing the campus as your own. Right. <laughs>
0: Dr. Darda is an associate professor of race and ethnic studies at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, he's edited and written in various journals and is author of two books, including Empire of Defense, Race and the Cultural Politics of Permanent War, and his most recent, How White Men Won the Culture Wars, A History of Veteran America. Joe, thanks again for taking the time to be on The Real War Project.
1: Thank you for having me, Aaron. I really appreciate it.
0: This has been Dirt Maps, a tributary to The Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more Dirt Maps by looking for The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project, wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Thanks for listening. Last, an elite group. Don't end it like this. Back there, I could fly a gunship. I could drive a tank. I was in charge of million dollar equipment. Back here, I can't even hold the job. Fucking God! Ah! One <laughs> second.
0: Oh. Jeez. Oh,
2: God. Where is everybody?
0: Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs.